Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Good morning, church. Man, it is good to be here with you. I am really pleased that you've chosen to join us as a congregation to be at the Loma Linda University Church. If you're watching online, we want to welcome you, but also, especially those of you who are here and my children who are here on the side, my parents. But I also want to give a hearty welcome to anyone here who's graduating. You see, it's graduation season. Anyone here graduating? Is there anyone? Oh, we got one, we got two, we got three, we got, okay, we got some graduates here. Hey, well, I am so glad that you're here. You know, graduation is one of those times I look back fondly of my own graduation when I got to put on the cap and gown and got to smile and laugh with my friends. And then we walk out and we take the hats and we say, we're done. Woo! We finished. We earned this degree. But you see, there's also this tinge of remorse, regret, rather maybe even a better word is sadness that I have when I think of graduation time. You see, as people march down, sometimes they get these cords and awards, and there was this one. I really wanted this one. It was called Phi Kappa Phi. It is a national award that's recognized across the United States, and it was an indication that you were at the top of your class. Well, graduation time was about to come, and there I got the letter. It said Phi Kappa Phi on it. I opened the letter, and some of you are like, you didn't make it. No, I did make it. I made it. You pessimists out there. (laughs) I made it into Phi Kappa Phi. I ran around the house, Elena, I made it into Phi Kappa Phi. I was so excited. And then she said, well, read the letter. I read the letter, and sure enough, I'd made it. And then at the bottom, my mouth dropped. (sighs) They wanted (laughs) $91.60. What in the world? Are you getting a business on this? Yeah, you better believe it's a business. I remember being in high school, and they said, National Award Scholar. Award of this, award of that, buy the book, $150, and you'll see your picture in there with 10,000 others. Well, I looked at Elena, and I said, babes, we are dirt poor, married students. There's no way I can afford this. And she looked at me, and she said, yeah. And so I do not have the Phi Kappa Phi membership of being one of those elite top members. At least I have it in my heart, right? There are some memberships that I have now. I have theological societies, of magazines, of 
the American youth educator of the prestigious and beautiful membership to the uh, Huntington Gardens and Library my wife and I love taking our kids to. But you see, these memberships have no merit on my life nor on how I live and my choices. There are some memberships you just really don't want to be associated with either, particularly when you're a preteen or teenager on the first day of school and you have affectionate parents. You have that conversation with your parents. Listen, let's just be clear here. You're dropping me off before we get to the school. A mile before we get to the school. I don't want to be seen near you. When we were in fifth grade, you gave me a big smoochy kiss, and I was called kissy face mama's boy for the rest of the year. I don't want to be known that I even have parents. So drop me off way before the school. Some memberships you could care less about. Others you don't want to be associated with. But there is one membership that I think many of us take for granted. There's one membership that I believe we don't fully understand the benefits of. Nor do we understand the need for involvement when you become a member in this to its fullest extent. And it's the member of becoming a part of the body of Christ. As a pastor, I believe this is probably one of the most neglected memberships out there. I see church members who sometimes look at me and assume, hey, I'm here, aren't I? Isn't that enough? I'm sitting in your pew. I've believed in Jesus. I even became an Adventist and got baptized. My names are on the books. Isn't that enough? And to that, I tell you no. Because it's probably one of the most presumptuous things that you and I can do is to assume that because our name is written and recorded somewhere, that we're part of a church community, that we're part of a denomination, that all of a sudden, now you fulfilled something in the eyes of Christendom. Now you're good because you're a member. But you see, the thing is, we are in a desperate need today in this world, in this time, as the war rages in Ukraine, as COVID still seems to be going around, as people still seem to be fear-mongering one another. We're in desperate need of Christians who really know they're Christians and act like them. We're in desperate need of a world of people who recognize above all the call of what it means to be a member in the body of Christ. We desperately need people who, as John professing the words of Jesus there in chapter 17, and he says, when the world sees us living in unity, then they will know the Father sent me, and they will know the love I have for them. It's when the body of Christ knows it's the body of Christ and fulfills the call that we actually then step into the reality of fulfilling what Jesus always wanted the body of Christ to be, a unity of believers living out the call of what they profess to believe inside. We get to the passage now in John chapter 17, and here you see the words of the apostle recounting several interactions that Jesus has with various groups, beginning that evening with the Roman soldiers. Then he goes to Caiaphas' home, 
And then he interacts with the Roman governor. It's here in his interaction with the Roman governor that I want to pause for a moment because of the significance of what takes place and how it might inform us in what it means to really live into the understanding of being a member of the body of Christ. Here we see the scene is set, and not only do all of his members leave him, but even one of his own denies that he's even a member with him. And so we turn to the passage there in John chapter 17, and beginning in verse 33, as was so beautifully read here. Read this with me, would you? And now, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did someone talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Listen, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest and the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is of another place. So you are a king of the Jews, then Pilate said. Listen, you say that I'm a king, and in fact, for this reason, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate retorted. You know, after this interaction, Jesus was flogged, stripped naked, and whipped with the cat of nines, which was a whip with barbs of metal at the end, which would have dug into his flesh and ripped it out. He would have been then placed into a room where they took a crown made with thorny bush that would dig into his scalp and bone, Blood caused to run down his face, and then they placed a robe around him so that he might look like some kind of a bloodied and beaten king. Pilate assumed that this would assuage these Jewish leaders and these angry mobs outside, but it didn't. They said, you must crucify him. And so Pilate caves cowardly into the killer need of the mob's blood thirst. And there Jesus, glorious and courageous in the act, dies for all of humanity, that anyone who might choose would receive salvation. You see, in this moment of cowardice, Jesus does the unimaginable. And to that we say, praise God, Lord, that you have done this. For by grace, by your merits, we are saved. Amen? Amen. But friends, there's one thing that happened between Pilate and Jesus that if you skip over this and you don't ponder this, you might just miss one of the most foundational and principles that you need to build your entire life on. And so I want to take you back for a moment to verse 37 and catch the interaction one more time between Pilate. Seven, Pilate says, you are a king then, and Jesus answers, you say I'm a king. And for that reason, I was born and came into the world to testify 
to the truth. This word testify in the Greek, literally the root word martureo, is the root of martyr. It is an act that your beliefs are put on display and they are such that you would literally be willing to die for them. He then says one other point that's so important. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The word listen, akueo in the Greek, it's not just the idea that you hear something and you understand it. Because in the Hebrew mind, to listen is also then to act. To listen is to obey. It's the same phrase that was used when Jesus was baptized there in Matthew 17. And his, Matthew 7, there his father looks down on him from above and he speaks a word and he says, good, this is my son, beloved. And he says this, listen to him. It was an implication not just to hear him out, but to obey what he says. The first reality that Jesus is trying to drive to Pilate is this. Truth is not a noun. Truth is not a set of ideas that you can debate about. Pilate wanted to look at Jesus and say, what's truth? Let's talk about this, Mr. Philosopher. When standing before Pilate was truth itself. Here, Jesus wanted to educate and help this man understand that truth equals Jesus. Jesus crucified. Jesus, the miracle worker. Jesus, the one who acts on the behalf of his people. Truth is not a noun. It is a person. Truth is not an idea to be debated upon, Pilate. It's me. And if you can't recognize that, I have nothing more to tell you. But I have to tell you, listen, we can all say amen. We can clap when I say truth equals Jesus. And we are up in arms. Yes, hallelujah. I believe that, Pastor. But I ask you a question. I ask you a very important question. Are you willing to live the truth? That is the question. Because it's one thing to say, my name's on the book. I have assented to the intellectual beliefs of all the baptismal vows. I agree with all the 28 fundamentals. I understand this person's now the present. I understand this. I get that. I understand it all. Yes, I believe it. But do you live it? Do you live it? Sojourn Kierkegaard, the Dutch father of existential philosophy wrote on this interaction between Jesus and Pilate. And he said this, and I, I have to read this to you. Truth is not a sum of statements, not a definition, not a system of concepts, but a life. Truth is not a property of thought that guarantees validity of thinking. No, truth is, in its most essential character, is the reduplication of truth within you. It is within me, within him. Your life, my life, his life expresses truth in its striving, acting. Just as the truth was a life in Christ, so too truth must be lived. 
Therefore, truth is not a matter of knowing this or that, of being in the truth. It is to have the truth for one's life. This always costs a struggle. Friends, truth must be lived. I'm tired. I am tired as a pastor of calling myself a pastor and seeing how I treat people sometimes. The ones I love the most. I remember as a youth pastor, I just started here seven years ago, and I botched it. I blew it. A young group of men I called out inappropriately. I set them up for failure and embarrassed them in front of others, and I did not treat them well as Christ would have. And you know why I take this subject so seriously? Why we have to live out our beliefs? Because I haven't seen any of those young men in church again. Because our actions have consequences. Because what we say and what we don't say and how we act and how we treat people matters. Because when you and I don't live up to the call of Christ, it affects people so much so that they say, I do not want to be associated with that place. Are you kidding me? I would never step into that place. You know, at annual council, every October, where our world leaders of the Adventist denomination gather, Dr. David Trim shares this interesting statistic that he's shared now several years over the last 50 years, almost 40 million people have become Adventist. Wow. And that is something to say hallelujah to. But then on the next breath that he has and on the next slide, he admits to the reality that a third of those have walked out as well. And of those third, two-thirds, two-thirds, almost 10 million are young adults. While we can sit here and clap, what does it mean when we as a denomination don't understand how to love them well? When we as a denomination don't understand how to support them well, be in the midst of their lives? You know, as a congregation, we participated in a phenomenal research opportunity some years ago called Growing Young, and it was studying the six factors and characteristics of churches that thrive with young people, and they are as follows. These six, leadership, empowerment, empathy with today's needs of young people, prioritizing youth and young adults all over your congregation, taking Jesus' message seriously, having thoughtful outreach, neighboring well with people, and being a warm church. You know, out of all six of those factors, out of the 7,500 church members across the North American division that have taken that survey, we scored number one. Guess in which one? Taking Jesus' message seriously. Truth. And you know which one we, we did the worst at? empathizing with the needs of young people. I'm tired of chasing young people out of our church. I'm tired of it. You know, as a, as a pastor who deals with young adults and youth, I've gotten this call several times in my life, and it's a scary call to get. 
It was the call of one of our young adults who was standing there on the precipice of a building ready to jump off. And I could hear the tears across on the phone, Pastor Philip. I'm scared. Can I come over? Absolutely, come over. And there, standing before me, is this young adult in tears crying. They were about to take their life. And why? Why? They recount the story of how at their home, they're cussed at, demeaned, put down, made to feel as though they're not even worthy to exist. And I looked at them and I said, listen, I am so, so sorry. And I asked this interesting question, a question that I will never forget and a response equally I will never forget. I said, surely they, they probably don't go to church, do they? And it was in that moment the sadness turned to anger and he looked at me and he said, they go to your church every single Sabbath morning. And he looked back down. Friends, if you think that your Adventism can simply be up here but not in your actions, you, my friend, must be careful. Because Adventism must be lived for it to be Adventism. It means nothing if you say you're an Adventist but don't live an Adventist lifestyle. And it doesn't mean just living long by eating vegetarian and coming to church and sitting in the pew. Can I tell you that honestly? I could care less if you lived to 95 or 100 and you were an evil spewer of pure toxicity all of your life. Oh, but I made it to 100. Yeah, and you know what? The people around you could barely make it to 60 because you were so bad. Listen, I'm not talking about the fact that you're not going to be saved some of you here, man, this guy's ripping up righteousness by faith. How dare he? We are saved by grace. And I tell you the truth, yes, you are. You are saved by grace. But Jesus also said there through the apostle Paul and Romans that because of your grace, it doesn't give you license to sin. And because of your grace, it doesn't give you license to take it for granted. For grace costs someone their life. And it should cost you and me our preferences, our spewing out of evil and our doing of bad deeds. It should cost us something to recognize we can't just act however we want and assume there's no consequences. Because people get hurt along the way. Oh, but you're saved. You're saved. But these people around you, they don't want to be near you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the World War II theologian, pastor, and assassin, he wrote on this profound reality of discipleship in a book called Discipleship. It was literally the teachings that he was giving to his students there in Finkenwald, the underground seminary of the Confessing Church, a group of churches and members who didn't want to confess to Hitler but confessed to Jesus Christ as their Lord. And they were heretics to the Third Reich. And teaching them, he wrote this book 
called discipleship. And he wrestles with this idea of how do you live out the grace of God and yet still be called to live into the grace of God. And he writes this. I want to read it to you. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of the church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. Cheap grace means justification of sin, but not the sinner. Because grace alone does everything, he says. Everything can stay in its old ways. But cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap to us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Friend, the beauty of what Jesus calls us to live into is founded in costly grace. A grace that isn't taken for granted. A grace that bathes the believer in a power to overcome because of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. So that those in our family, our children, church members, and others around might be able to say, hey, this person, this person's walking with Jesus. And I see a difference. I see something different. Most church members and people don't leave the church because they don't believe in the 28 fundamental beliefs. That's based on Scripture. They leave the church because people don't know how to live out the 28 fundamental beliefs amongst each other. Literally in the statistics that I read to you earlier, I went through the justifications that people gave why they walked away and those at least that responded when they left the Adventist church. A majority of them, family issues, pastor issues, church leader issues, fighting amongst one another in the congregation pew. Majority of reasons why people walk away has nothing to do with beliefs. It has everything to do with how we live out our beliefs with each other. And so this morning, I want to challenge you in this way. First off, despite being a broken church, Despite being a broken people in need of God's grace, we all have to look up. Every single one of us. The broken and the bruised. The abuser and the abused. We all are in need, as Isaiah 45 calls us, the prophet says, look up to see your salvation. If you and I stare at each other too long, we will become discouraged and wanting to go out every time. 
But if together we all collectively look up to Jesus, who is our healing and is our salvation, we together might be changed. And by that change, we might then transform our congregation, our denomination, our Christian brother and sisterhood. When we keep our eyes on Jesus. You know, they say that a church that seems to be bickering amongst each other is a church that's lost its focus on Christ and mission. And they've started to look at each other. Hey, you know what? You got this going on. And you know what? I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. And you know what? I'm tired of this. And you know what? But when we keep our eyes on Christ together, we stay focused on what is most important. And so I give you these three challenges right now. First one. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you courage. Courage to be obedient to what you know is true. It's a very difficult call. I understand that. I'm a sinner just like you. I don't need to recount to you all of my sins, but I understand, I'll tell you that. But we've got to get to a point where we pray for the courage and power of the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to obey. Now, change does take time, I get that. But we've got to pray for that. Number two, are you an Adventist because you believe something or because you live something? Ask yourself the question. Are you an Adventist simply because you believe something? Or is it because you actually live something out? Imagine if someone went up to you and said, hey, do you believe in the Sabbath? Yes, I do, but do you keep the Sabbath? Hey, that's a different question. Do you actually believe in the sanctity of marriage? Sure I do, but do you actually keep faithful to your spouse? Ooh, now you're calling me out. Do you believe in Jesus, but not actually believe in his transforming power of grace to change your life practically? It doesn't matter what you believe if your works don't live that out. Lastly, I want you to consider picking a group of people that you want to live more honorably towards in your sphere of influence in your life. Pick a group that you understand would really benefit from you living more faithfully in front of them. Is it your neighbor? Is it your spouse? Is it a group of church members you're around that there's been a lot of fighting with? Have there been church members or family members or co-workers that you just know you haven't lived into the glory of God's call to be a believer? Have you been hiding that you're a believer because you're ashamed of how you live? Friend, pick one of those groups and say, God, give me the power to live more honorably before them so that by my love, I might draw them to your love, that you might fulfill the call of John as Jesus prayed by their love, might the world know that you sent me. Adventism must be lived. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.